hello. Welcome to Conversations at the Whole Note. Our guest today is uh, Jonathan Crow, the new artistic director of Toronto Summer Music. Hearty welcome. Glad to have you nice here. Nice to be here. Do you have to be from McGill to be the artistic director of <laughs> Toronto Summer Music? <laughs> it certainly makes for an easy connection, I would say. You know, Douglas McNabney, the former artistic director, is my first chamber music coach at McGill. Oh, really? So it feels very strange to be doing programming this year when Douglas is coming back and say, hey, Douglas, what do you want to play? Right. Because it's always been him at McGill saying, okay, you guys are going to play this in first semester and this in second semester. Right. Right. Well, it's funny, the Quebec connection generally, because Agnes Grossman was at Orford before she came to Toronto Summer Music. That's what, 11? Is this 11 or 12? Somewhere around there. Something like that. I was working at Orford with Agnes back then, actually. I remember looking at some of the opera posters in the TSM offices. I'm like, oh, Ah. yeah, I remember playing this opera with Agnes at Orford. Uh And she would kind of do back and forth, do some of the same things in both. Uh-huh. You know, uh, Quebec has had a real tradition of summer festivals with mm-hmm. the Orford Art Centre, with Domaine Forge. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Douglas and Agnes have both had so much experience working with these institutions that it's a logical connection right. that Canada's largest city should have a festival of its own. Right, right. And uh, interestingly, uh, I mean, Orford, the Orford connection is interesting just in terms of the name, if nothing else, because uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, the whole the whole balance between uh, orchestral and and chamber. Um, <laughs> that I, I suppose I'd ask the question is, how would you survive as an orchestral musician if you didn't have chamber right. music? You know, balance is a question I get asked a lot. Like, how do you balance all these things in your life? And I think more than it being a balance, that it's a constant kind of like, correction of having too much of one thing or not enough of another thing. Mm -hmm. And when I think about orchestra and chamber music, for me, the ideal is that they're exactly the same thing. And that was one of the things that drew me to Toronto when I first came is that the music director, Peter Ungen, is a chamber music guy. And I'd known him for years. We worked together back when I was 18 at Ravinia Festival. And the way he approaches orchestra music is that it's just a big chamber group. And this is what I always believe it should be as well. Everybody should listen. Everybody should feel like they're involved in the music making. Mm. It shouldn't be a a dictatorship where one person says you have to do it this way and stop using your brain and stop thinking and stop making music. Like we're all on stage to make music. And the more that we can Mm -hmm. think of it as just a big chamber group, the better. Um, you know, when you're playing a huge Mahler symphony, sometimes it's a little bit hard to feel like you're making chamber music with the third trumpet who might be 100 feet away. And then, of course, you need a conductor. But I think the greatest conductors these days are conductors that encourage their musicians to feel like they're involved, to feel like they're making chamber music. So I suppose the answer is I would never get sick of the right kind of orchestral playing or the right kind of chamber music playing. I was wondering uh, what conductors fall into that category for you? Well, Peter's a great example, but I think uh, when you're thinking of, of the younger up-and-coming generation, somebody like Yannick Nézé-Séguin is, is the greatest example. You know, He's somebody that inspires his musicians to make music. He doesn't tell them to make music. He inspires them to find what they want to say themselves, and he helps to kind of like, you know, shape it and make sure everybody's working together. But he doesn't say you have to do it this way or, or get out. You know, It's this idea of encouraging your colleagues um, who he respects greatly in, in Philly and the Met, to encouraging people to, to use their own ideas and to make music. So you don't find it tough going back and forth? or No, honestly, I don't. And I think the way I like to approach both is trying to find what I enjoy about both of them. And, you know, orchestra, the great thing about orchestra is that you have somebody that can tell, at the end of the day, you get somebody who makes a decision. And mm-hmm. the great thing about chamber music is at the end of the day, you have to fight it out amongst yourselves. Right. And going back in between those two is kind of nice. You know, sometimes like after having four guys in a room playing chamber music for many, many weeks and you get, it's like, oh boy. Sometimes it's nice to go to orchestra and have somebody be able to decide mm. and not have to talk everything out. But then obviously a lot of the music that we make comes from the ideas that we hash out together. And like every decision that's made or is not made somehow changes what happens on stage. Mm. 
You mentioned when you were coming in here that you were actually coming from a new Orford rehearsal That's right. today. What are you rehearsing for particularly? Today we're on a kind of little mini tours. We have a concert in London, Ontario. We're finishing oh, up yeah. our portion of a Beethoven cycle there that we're sharing with the Pacifica Quartet. Are they done with their half? Um, no, they have one more concert, I think, coming up in May or June. I'm not sure. So they're going to close it out. We've done two and this is our third. And, and then we've got a concert in Toronto, actually rehearsing Schubert's cello quintet for that with Adrian mm -hmm. Fung. And you're doing, uh, for Jeffrey, you're doing uh, two 18s and uh, a 135, yeah. right? That's what I... Yeah, it's funny because the, the first one we did for them was 59.3 and Opus 130. So and the and the few gross with, with the gross fugue, the idea is to you, pair two of the big fugue finales yeah. together. Did you? But you did once. You did one thirty with its with its final movement. No, we didn't. We did oh. the original with just the fugue. With just the fugue. Yeah. That's the way we like to do it. I find uh, it's it's hard to put that alternate finale on after the fugue. Yeah. And if you do it before, you don't get the Cavatina fugue connection. Mm -hmm. So. For now, that's what we do. We haven't well, figured out the perfect solution. Yeah, doing both is the worst of both worlds. So. I think so. And I think it's hard for the audience to find a way to interpret what the other movement's supposed to be when they've just heard the fugue. Mm -hmm. Oh, I actually, now that you mentioned the Schubert Quintet, I read uh, in an interview you gave a while ago that you can whistle and hum in <laughs> harmony. And your repertoire included the second theme of the first movement of the Schubert Cello Quintet. Is that true? You know, it used to be true. No, Because I, I used to be at university, right? So I'd spend all my time, instead of practicing the violin, I'd play foosball and practice whistling and humming. Uh, the same and then time. I realized, well, maybe it'd be better to practice the violin part of that and actually perform it instead of having a circus trick. But yeah, it used to be something that I could do. Darn, we back were, in the day we were gonna ask you to to do your part <laughs> but not under pressure us, but not under pressure we won't either not under pressure or not laughing at the same <laughs> time they don't work um I, something that that i noticed the the first of the three that you did for the i didn't notice it uh, full disclosure paul noticed it um the uh the program that you did to open that, the Opus 59 number three and the 130 and the 133 right. um, is identical to the program, the third of the six that the Dover Quartet are going to be doing at the Montreal Chamber Festival. They're doing mm -hmm. the whole cycle at Montreal Chamber right. Festival this May. Um, I, I don't think that necessarily leads anywhere very profound but it was just a very interesting coincidence i don't i think there's only so many ways you can divide them up that make sense and uh -huh. if you had brian maker here the cellist in our quartet he could talk to you for hours on how he puts together programs he's our resident kind of musicologist and he's the one who decides when we're doing beethoven's how we put them together mm -hmm. so the idea behind this is that 59.3 ends with a very massive fugal finale Mm -hmm. And the 130, if you do the Opus 133 gross fugue at the end, it kind of takes that even further. So the idea with that is to show a middle Beethoven period quartet with a fugue, which is still somewhat comprehensible, mm -hmm. and then show where he goes later in life with a fugue, which is borderline incomprehensible mm -hmm. to at least me. Hopefully somebody can understand it. Busy. <laughs> the, you know the the old saw if if you want something done well give it to a busy man <laughs> or a busy person i i find it incomprehensible how much you manage to keep on the go you know it's it's kind of amazing in this day and age what you can get done on an airplane or what you can get done on a subway ride you know like 20 years ago before iphones before computers before iCal when basically when you needed to get an answer of something, you had to be at home, you had to pick up the phone and had to be during business hours to talk to somebody, what I do would be impossible. But I have to be honest, a lot of what I can get done is done by email. And a lot of that can get done at times when normally nobody else would be able to respond. Like if I'm taking a long flight out to Vancouver, or if I'm going to Europe or something, I can get so much of what I need to get done for administration mm. taken care of. A lot of the TSM stuff, a lot of my kind of teaching, scheduling, that sort of stuff. And honestly, without that sort of kind of timing and the efficiency of being able to use what's normally dead time, there's no way I'd be able to kind of put together what I, what I do and make that mix between practicing and family. 
yeah. administration. Again, it comes back to balance. It's always the hardest thing to mm -hmm. find the time for the stuff which gets left, right? So practice time becomes what I have to make sure I schedule out for myself. When I was in university or something, I'd be like, oh, I get a couple free hours and I'll make sure I just practice when I have that time. Mm -hmm. But these days I have to make sure that I actually put in my calendar. Okay, I need a couple hours here to practice. I have a big concert coming up and I need to make sure that I don't put it in around other things. Otherwise that time just doesn't exist. Do you, do you find you use the digital stuff as a, as a shortcut for the internalizing of new music or stuff? Or do you still discipline yourself to work off the page? That's interesting. Um, do you mean like using an iPad to read things? Well, not just to use an iPad to read things, but to listen to other people's versions of and that kind of thing, especially well, with it's new a, work. It's, it's a good question. Yeah, I would say that there's very few works I come across these days that I haven't played that are standard. So if we're thinking something like Beethoven concerto or Brahms concerto, that sort of stuff, it's something I've played a lot, but also have heard many, many times. Mm -hmm. And then there are contemporary works which nobody has recorded yet. Right. So I'd say there's, there's a very small selection of works that falls in the middle, things that I don't know and are very standard rep that have been recorded a lot. Um, mm -hmm. So something like Beethoven concerto, Yes, when I'm relearning it, I'll listen to a recording that I just love or something like that, just to kind of, as much for pleasure as anything else, to remember like, oh yeah, this is such a great piece and why didn't I play it for a couple of years? I'm happy to come back to it. Um, but with a premiere or something that hasn't been done, you don't have that shortcut. And I don't find that the meaty sort of thing where you take a score and just put it into the computer and, and there's no interpretation, that I don't find that useful mm -hmm. because there's so many little gestures that you need to make when you're playing that can't be interpreted like that, that it always sounds a little bit too robotic to me mm -hmm. and that it doesn't give the idea of like, okay, well, how are we going to make this phrase? Where do you need that small amount of time? How does it become something which is music and not just, mm -hmm. you know, digital signals or notes? I wanted to backtrack to something that you said in a music children interview that you did for us about four years ago okay. or so uh, in which you said one of the advantages of playing a stringed instrument is getting the chance to perform with friends basically from day one i can't actually remember a time playing the violin when i wasn't playing in ensembles of some sort this is one of the things that kept me going in music i didn't want to lose out on hanging out with my friends so this summer music, uh, is that an excuse to hang out with friends? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the you program? Know, uh, and it's all true. And this is, when I was a kid, like the social aspects of making music was what I loved. I played mm -hmm. in a quartet since the age of 10 or something with my sister and two friends in Prince George. And, you know, just the idea of doing something alone in your practice room was, you know, obviously you have to get your part to a certain point. But what I love about chamber music and orchestra is the interaction and, and learning from what other people do. And I would say a lot, of, a lot of music is like that. Even teaching is amazing because you can have a student and a student will come and they'll play Sibelius Concerto. Mm -hmm. And it's a piece I've heard hundreds of times. And then suddenly a student will come and do something that I never even thought of. Hmm. And it's amazing to think, oh, I always tell them, like, oh, that's interesting. And then I, t I take it home and I pretend it was my own idea, right? Yeah. But it, it's, you can learn so much from other people. And I think Toronto Summer Music is the same. This opportunity to have so many great musicians that are all doing different things in their lives and have different influences and that can all come together in Toronto and bring those influences. Working a piece like Schubert Quintet, I'm not playing it this summer, but working a piece mm -hmm. like that with people that have done it with all kinds of different people themselves and had different experiences doing it. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to have a, a standard repertoire piece and feel like you can always learn something new about it. And that's, I think, what we're all trying to do in music. You know, the yeah. minute it becomes like, oh, we'll just do it the same way, that's when it's like, well, then just listen to a CD because then you can know it's going to be exactly the same. Exactly. It's a living... Yeah. And it's all, it's interpretation, right? I don't think many composers really intended their music to be absolutely one way all the time. You know, it's mm -hmm. a different room, a different audience, a different group of people playing. Times change and the music, you know, interpretations in a way change according to the society that we're in. Mm -hmm. Um, the, I remember once when Douglas was here, uh, we were chatting about the fellows and mentors aspect of, of Toronto summer music, um, which, uh, I'm sure we'll cycle back to that a little bit, but he was talking about how, you know, you, you'd think of that 
the first thing you think about that is it's giving the fellows, the people who are actually attending the academy, the opportunity to perform with, you know, the, the masters, with with the men, <laughs> with the mentors. But he he mentioned something. I think he said that uh, Menachem Presler had said about how, for him, it was the gift of being able to remember how he himself would have interpreted a piece many, many, many years ago. So that that reinvention that you're talking about being a, a two-way street. Right. Yeah. I, I would agree entirely. And I would even go a little bit further and say it's like the gift of remembering what it was like to experience some of these works for the very first time. Right. To, to play Brahms piano quintet for mm. the first time and to realize as you're going through, oh my gosh, this, this piece is amazing. Mm. And this is so much fun. And just to see the process, you know, through people's minds that have not done it before and are having this opportunity to play great, great works. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we need to remind ourselves, even when we're playing, you know, the standard war horses and you're playing a concerto, which you've done a hundred times or a piece of chamber music, which you've done 50 times. Mm -hmm. to remember like, no, no, somebody in the audience is hearing this for the very first time. And yeah. that person needs to be given that same experience that we all got when we heard it for the first time and fell in love with it. And maybe that was what caused us to go into music and, you know, I remember listening to the Brahms piano quintet kind of scherzo movement over and over as a kid and thinking, this is just about the coolest thing I've ever heard. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And then now I've played the piece, you know, dozens of times, but somebody in the audience is still hearing that scherzo for the first time and should, we should play in a way that gives them the same excitement. Mm -hmm. And for us to remember that, even when we play it regularly, it's, it's a great thing. And just the fact that you're changing pianists as well. You're not playing with the same pianist each time. Absolutely. Yeah. The piano has a lot to do in that piece. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I thought we'd take a look at sort of the lineup for the Great. Toronto Summer. To me, it seems like a string-centric celebration of chamber music with a, ro a wide roster of Canadian performers. First week's programming, really impressive. St. Lawrence String Quartet, James Ennis, Soyol Lysakovsky. They all stand out. What was your process like to find these particular performers and... Well, I think in this Canadian sesqui year, the idea was to make this a, a big Canadian mm -hmm. celebration and sometimes to bring back Canadian artists that, not that we've forgotten them, that just have lived in other countries for a while. Somebody like Martin Beaver, who's one of Canada's greatest violinists ever, mm -hmm. but who happens to live in the States and has lived in the States for many, many years now. We don't get to see him perform mm -hmm. with us nearly as much as we should. And he should be a mainstay on every single concert stage in Canada. James Ennis is a bit of a no-brainer, of course. I mean, James Ennis is, you know, the greatest violinist Canada has ever produced, in my opinion. And, you know, we're, we're thrilled that he's coming back to not just perform, but also to work with the regeneration artists, to work with the fellows. And this is part of what we like to do, the idea of having somebody like James Ennis to play a concerto with an orchestra of the fellows. I mean, this is an experience which they are going to remember. For, mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, string, yeah, I would say it probably is a little bit string centric. This is where I, where I come from. And <laughs> sure. it's the music that I maybe fell in love with growing up. Is there anybody else that you felt you just had to have on the roster besides those people you just named? Everybody. And so Everybody many had more. To be there. You know, I, I'm really excited to have Nikki Chewy here. Mm. Nikki Chewy is a fantastic violinist from Victoria who I kind of semi grew up with. I lived in Victoria for three years and Nikki is probably about maybe six years younger than me, I'm thinking. Um, and so we got to know each other pretty well in Victoria and he would always come to my concerts. Uh, he and his brother, Timmy, would always come backstage and got to work with him a little bit. Um, but Nikki is the new concert master of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, which is one of the <clears throat> biggest violin jobs in the world. Mm -hmm. So to have him back, but also have him playing in a, an opera highlights concert, playing Waxman Carmen Fantasy for me is really exciting. That is exciting. Um, and... I mean, looking at the first week, having St. Lawrence String Quartet open with their BAMP, as you said in the launch, with their BAMP winning program. Yeah, selections from what they won BAMP with. What was that now? 20? It was 92. 20, 92. Wow. Wow. Yeah. 25. 25 years ago. Gosh. And, and it, but looking at the program with the Haydn, Murray Schaefer, and Beethoven 131, it's just so typical of what they've done over the last 25 yeah. years and i think they've done a great job of of playing the standards but incorporating great new canadian works and and modern works too i remember the first thing i ever heard them play was a concert at the Banff center when i was a student there and they played bartok third string quartet and 
It's the first time I'd heard a Bartok string quartet live. And I remember just being shocked. I'm like, you can do that on the violin? I had no idea. Right. And so I think in a way for the audiences here to see Haydn, who like basically invented the quartet, Beethoven, who perfected it, if you will, and then Schaefer, who followed in their footsteps. I mean, these are three of the great, great quartet writers of all time. And, and to have a chance to see them all together and see how that program connects, I think is wonderful. And is there a greater string quartet than Opus 131? greater uh, are there ones that people like better yes is there really <laughs> well uh i mean we all have our personal favorites mm. right but probably not i mean i personally for me 59 one is mm. my favorite is it a better string quartet i don't know i just really love playing the slow mm. movement oh yeah so uh, for me i just i love there's certain ones that i love playing so much that it maybe separates which is a better piece or anything like that just because i enjoy the process so much very interesting. You could trace a through line with the Opus 131 through a number of the things we discussed already. It was, yes, the, absolutely. was the last piece that Peter Ungen played with the Tokyo String Quartet in Houston, his very last concert right. with the Tokyo. And then he did an orchestral, his own orchestral mm -hmm. arrangement of it with the TSO on one of the first programs right, that yeah. he did with the TSO when he arrived as, as conductor here. And it's the opening concert of your festival, and it's the last work on the Dover's cycle in That's Montreal. Right. So it certainly, certainly has a, certainly has a pedigree, shall we say? Well, I suspect you'll be seeing it in the uh, semi-near future at TSM, just with 2020 being the the big Beethoven anniversary. Mm -hmm. Probably going to be a lot of Beethoven that year, is my guess. Yeah, Sesqui Beethoven. Yeah, or whatever. Um, Getting back to James Ennis, um, his solo concert, mm -hmm. he's doing a sonata by Barry Cabana. Yeah. Did, and you premiered that piece, I think. I didn't premiere the actual one that he's playing, but those, uh, he wrote six sonatinas oh. in kind of memory of Bach at the big Bach anniversary. What was that, 12 years ago now? Uh -huh. And I premiered, I think, oh, which number did I do? Which number is he doing? I'm doing, well, I, I premiered not that one because I told him he wasn't allowed to play the one that I premiered so that he would premiere <laughs> a, a different one. Oh, I but see. there were six of them written, lovely short pieces in a kind of a Baroque style, <laughs> but, you know, contemporary in, the, in their own way, but with a tribute to kind of the Baroque dance feel and, and the sort of writing that Bach had, you know, polyphonic for the violin. Um, and we thought it'd be a perfect fit with a solo violin program. You always think, well, it's, it's always going to be based around Bach somehow because there's very little for solo violin, which isn't somehow inspired by or related to the Bach. Not as, so then, well, Isai again is a perfect fit. There's six of those. So he picked his favorite. And then there's six of the Cabana Sonatinas, and it makes a really kind of nice program with, I think, something for everybody. And I then, kind of insist on the Isai just because I want all my students to go and sit in the front row and <laughs> learn what, how it should be done. Yeah, I heard Vengerov play one of those uh, recently. And, but, um, th but then you move into the Bach um, celebration with the orchestra. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've got you, Ennis, and Andrew Wan. That's right. So how are you balancing out who's playing what? Um, Andrew is playing the really, really hard part for the triple, because James and I decided that he should. Okay. I think it's the second violin part, but there's one of them which is ridiculously hard, but it's not the first violin part. It's kind of a little bit of a trick. So we gave that to Andrew. Um, <laughs> Andrew's a little bit busier that week, so he's only playing in the triple. So James will play the two solo, and then James and I will do the Bach double, because that's something we played. Uh, I mean, everybody's played it so many times that we did it a couple of years back at the Lenodier Festival and had a really uh, nice time doing it in a similar sort of situation with a conductorless orchestra that we worked with. And then moving into week two... Something that jumped out at me is the Ralston String Quartet, where you've done this really nice touch by having them, the Banff winners from last year, right. sort of echoing St. Lawrence in the first week. Mm -hmm. um, and they're playing also selections from their prize-winning program. Exactly. They're playing a Zosha Di Castri commissioned work for the Banff competition. I'm assuming it's the first time it'll be played in Toronto, but I'm not actually 100% sure if a student group has done it already. And then I notice in the Dvorak Piano Trio program that you've got Desmond Hobig, the last cellist of the Orford Quartet. Right. So that's just another really it, nice In touch. an interesting way, Canada is a very, very big country and it's a very small musical world. So Desmond is somebody that 
I knew of growing up. He always taught at Scotia Festival, and my wife is from Halifax, so I knew of Desmond Hobig. But he was, again, one of Canada's great, great cellists of all time. He was principal of the Cleveland Orchestra and has had a huge career. But because he's very busy, is not back as much as you would like. And I run into Desmond all the time at the Royal Conservatory because he teaches there, but rarely has much time to bring a cello and to perform. So we're, we're thrilled that he was able to come, I think he's coming straight from Aswin, but have some time in the summer to come play, play with us. And also in that program is a piece that I'm not familiar with, uh, The Widow, Les Veuves. Mm -hmm. Can you tell, talk a yeah. little bit about that? So Les Veuves is a, a string quartet written by Uriel Vanchestein, which is premiered. Again, we're going back by the New Orford String Quartet. Yeah. Um, and Andrew and I are both playing in that piece. And it's a piece that we really like. We think it's great. It's about nine minutes long. And it's inspired by a poem. And it's very, very dark, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because the program notes that Uriel says, he says all the lovely things about the piece. He talks about how he uses the, the stick of the wood to sound like axes and how the there's like you know light kind of cello writing to sound like the the trees and the wind and birds and stuff but then he doesn't actually write about the basic principle of it and the idea is that les veuves refers to these widows and it's about um it's about deforestation basically and the idea is that you basically start in the forest and there's trees and there's birds and it's all beautiful and you kind of go through the life of this indigenous woman and a lot of, and it's based in Quebec, right? So you see people going out into the wood to cut down all the trees. And they basically they cut down all the trees while people are trying to stop them. And then they celebrate having deforested the whole place by going and watching a hockey game. This woman goes to confront them and says, you have to, you're destroying the landscape. And she's treated very badly and all kinds of awful things happen. And they're, you know, the hockey game kind of probably ends badly and the Habs lose. And so she, she locks the doors to this cabin and burns it down with everybody inside. And the widows refers to all the women at home waiting for their husbands to come home from logging that are never going to show up. Wow. So it's, yeah, it's a, a kind of a dark, a dark principle. Are you but still, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece. Are you still a Habs fan? I am a Habs fan. I hope that's not going to get me in trouble. Well, not here. But <laughs> not yet. You know, I grew up watching the Habs because I grew up in BC. And for a kid, we got all the French Canada broadcasts, of course. Um, and I'd get many of the Maple Leafs games, but often the Maple Leafs wouldn't be broadcast because we get the Canucks instead. Um. So on French CBC at four o'clock, you'd get the Habs. And that was a perfect time for a kid growing up. Like when you're eight or nine, you watch the four o'clock game, have some dinner in front of it, and you go to bed. It's great. So I got to see almost all those games and then maybe the first hour or so of the Canucks game before I go to bed. It must have helped you when you went to McGill. Yeah, it was that nice. That background. Yeah. <laughs> also with the hockey sweater every time you have to yes, do it with the TSO, exactly. right? <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, I'm wondering, with, on that Dvorak program, are you playing in the Dvorak piano trio? Yes, I am. Just, again, it's like a little bit selfish, but I just love that piece so much mm. and I wanted to play with Desmond. <laughs> what is it your love about it? For me, the, the tunes. I mean, I love Dvorak for sure, yeah, but there's something about yeah. piano trio tunes, which you just feel like you have so much freedom and you get to hear the cello play the tune and you get to play it yourself. Quartets are amazing and they're incredible, but there's so much going on a lot of the time. You don't feel always like you can just kind of do what you want in the spur of the moment. And that can be a great thing because you get the idea of this kind of group ensemble and cohesiveness from a quartet. But you're always concerned when you're playing with other string players about how every single articulation works, how everybody's use of the bow works the same way. So if you're playing a tune in octaves with a second violin, for example, you know, we spend hours trying to make sure that we don't move our bows a little bit faster than one another so something sticks out. And in a piano trio, you rarely have that same sort of thing. Unless you're playing a big octave tune with a cello, it's normally <laughs> one person being accompanied by the other two. Mm -hmm. So I would say you have a little bit more freedom to be soloistic in the spur of the moment, mm. for good and for bad, I suppose. Very interesting. Mm. Now, moving into week three, uh, we have the string extravaganza um, with the great Schubert. Quintet. Yeah, the great the Schubert. Such an amazing mm -hmm. piece. And we have two great cellists here this year and that's unusual we normally don't have two cellos at the same time uh, yeah that's true i mean hobig and johnson yeah from the tso yeah and it's interesting because in 
in most situations, you know, everybody's like, oh, I want to play the first part of that. But both of them have emailed and said, oh, I really want to play the second part of the Schubert. It's such a great part. I really want to play the second. Can I have that one? Well, it's interesting that this, in the Moordale concerts, I guess Adrian Fung is playing the second That's part. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Usually if you're doing it with a string quartet, it would be almost unheard of for the quartet cellist to, to play second. Yeah. Can you talk about what makes that piece so great? That's a, that's a tough one. You know, it's one of those things that it was one of the first great pieces of chamber music that I played well. At least I think I played it. I hope I played it well. Um, I did it when I was in university and I did it with my wife and we are still married. And so I have very good memories of the piece. But it was something, it was one of the first pieces that I learned in university kind of really getting in depth and to work on, I would say, professional level things. Like not just like, okay, get through the piece and end together and play it in festival and that's enough. Like we had a coach, and this is with Marcel Sincere of the Orford Quartet, so it all comes together again. We, we worked on all kinds of articulations. We worked on bow strokes. We worked on, on sound, right? It felt like I was getting more in depth in the piece than anything that I ever played before. And so I suppose I just have really good memories of that. But it's it's just one of the greatest pieces that Jamie's like ever written. I mean, it's unique in its kind of like cello-ness. There's very little that's not Boccherini for two cellos. I mean, there's a Borodin and there's a Glazunov. But I would say the Schubert is really kind of the pinnacle of all chamber music. And it's just the scope. You know, when people talk about Schubert's heavenly length, but somehow this piece doesn't feel too long. It feels epic. And it feels at the end that you've really gone somewhere. Then we have your own concert. Um, what you're uh, according to this brochure, it just says you're playing Debussy, Willen, Elgar, and Ravel. Right. Which specific pieces? Are so you the doing? the idea of this was to put together a program which represents the founding fathers and Canadian a brilliant celebration, really. right? So, brilliant conception. Well, yeah, thank you. I stole it from Stéphane Lemelin, who's doing something at the Picton Music Series this year. Um, but the, I think the idea is to show pieces, you know, that that came. It's all Canadian history. So mm -hmm. there's a few standard things. We're doing the WC Sonata and the the Ravel Sonata, which are fairly standard these days. Um, we're going to play the Healy Willen E minor sonata, which is a, I think a great, great piece, not played so much, not in any way contemporary sounding. It's a great, great romantic piece. Mm. And there's a few kind of Canadian pieces kicking around that are like that. The Macmillan string quartet, for example, is a great romantic string quartet, which we, we hear the name Macmillan, we think, oh my gosh, it must be modern, but it's, it's actually, it's amazing. It's recorded on Deutsche Grammophone, I think, by the Amadeus Quartet, ages back, but never really got its due. And then Elgar, who's one of my favorite composers, but I didn't want to do the sonata because in a way I wanted to show a little bit, something a little bit lighter from that side. So it's going to be a selection of, of short pieces of Elgar, Sospiri and Salut d'Amour and, and this sort of stuff. The old empire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and moving on to the TSO chamber soloists with Jane Coop as special guest. I'm really curious about what is in that program. For example, are you, is it going to comprise the Mozart Oboe Quartet, for example? There's going to be a nice mix of stuff. So we have a great, uh, a few great wind players from the TSO with us that week. We have Sarah Jeffrey, we have Gabe Bradford on the horn, and we have our new principal flute. Yes. Who will be making her Toronto debut officially as principal flute. Very exciting. In this concert. So she's going to, Kelly Zimba is going to play Debussy's uh, Syrinx for ah. solo flute. With the idea that everybody wants to hear her, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, we have Carmen Braden, who's a wonderful Yellowknife composer. I love the fact that she sings in the Aurora Corialis. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's great. And actually, I, I met her when James Ennis was in town maybe a year and a half ago. Maybe it was only last year for the Royal Conservatory 21C. Uh, and she had written a piece for him, which I then checked out on YouTube, which I think is fantastic, called Magnetic North. Uh, oh. A great piece. And so... We were thrilled that the Gelber Foundation approached us to commission a Canadian composer to write a piece for the TSM this year. And they, they thought it'd be wonderful to tie it in with the Toronto Symphony Chamber players with the idea that when you create a piece, it's nice if it can be championed. And the idea is that we can play this piece over and over and it's not gonna be a one-off. So it's not a group of people coming together from out of town that won't be around to perform the piece again. We, we intend to make this piece part of our repertoire. And Brahms Horn Trio which again, is just a great piece. And having Gabe here, I really want a chance to showcase him. And then we come to the tribute to Anton Querti. Oh, but before we do that, let's, uh, week three, the, the night at the opera, mm -hmm. you were saying earlier, remembering 
the opera posters from when Agnes yeah. was starting out, and the 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 art of song and the the vocal aspect of of this festival has changed changed over over the years. We've been talking. Right. about the instrumental so far. But this night at the opera, last year there was one night of opera right. in the thing. And so I was just wondering, um, it feels like a little bit of a, little bit of a, signet, a kind of nod to the origins of... Yeah, I mean, I would say that we always intend to have a fairly significant vocal component and opera is a, a huge part of the... Toronto music community, I would say. I mean, there's so many great opera companies, small tapestry opera, you know, mm. and, you know, all, all kinds of things that are, that are going on in Toronto doing great stuff. Opera generally has a longer planning curve mm. than we had for this year with me just starting. It was my first year. And opera is always, it's an interesting thing because we do basically one-off shows. Mm. And opera does not really work very well in one-off shows because the amount of time working out everything, every little detail, the staging, the costumes mm-hmm. means that you kind of need to be able to put it on a little bit more. And I think in, in Ontario, there's so many great festivals that there's actually room for opera companies in the summer to put on productions, which could tour from Alora to Niagara to here, go to mm-hmm. Ottawa and do all kinds of great stuff. Um, I would say that we are not equipped to put to- that on ourselves, but I really mm-hmm. hope that there's a company that kind of takes on that sort of idea because I think there's a lot of space for that. So this night at the opera is... So the idea is, I mean, Julie Nasrallah is putting this together for us and it's going to be great. It's not going to be staged sort of stuff and it's not going to be as acted. But I mean, whenever you see Julie on stage, she's never Mm -hmm. just standing there and singing. She's always acting the role. She's always playing a part. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that we will create little mini operas but on the stage of Kerner. And so she's putting uh, together a great program, a lot of Carmen in there, which is why Nikki's going to play the wax right. Carmen fantasy. A little bit of uh, Thais, uh, meditation will be in there for sure, and uh, a lot of other nice kind of gems. Okay. Yeah. And and actually, she goes back to your McGill days She does, too. yeah. We were, we were good friends at McGill. And I played in the pit in many operas that she sang at McGill. So uh, back to Querty. Yeah. Why did you choose him for the tribute? And... Jane Coop as its kind of linchpin. Yeah, Jane was a, a student of Anton's, so it seemed mm-hmm. like a very logical connection. Anton, I think, represents some of what is the greatest about Canada. Anton's from away and made Canada his home, but really dedicated his life to Canada. And I think we all consider him a huge Canadian presence and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of an iconic figure in the history of music in Canada. Uh, he's also around in Toronto, and I, I think, in a way, celebrating what he has brought to music in Toronto is really important. He's run series here. He ran Moordale concerts for years, mm. performed, I mean, countless times in Toronto and great concerts that are remembered by many of our concert goers themselves. And Jane was instrumental in putting together a program of works. And we were in contact with Anton to make sure everything was so according was to what of, he wanted. He was involved in the creation. Yeah, absolutely. And between Jane and he kind of put together an idea of a program which would suit what he liked, what he was known for, um, and in a way represent represent him as a pianist and performer to the best of our ability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite an amazing little program. Beethoven, Brahms, Mozart, Schumann. So and the Schumann Piano Quartet, so he must have played that. I wonder how many times he actually would have played a piece like that. I mean, hundreds, yeah, I would I mean, say certainly. We were thinking Brahms piano quintet, but because we had Brahms earlier in the week, we thought we'd go with Schumann. And of course, I mean, his solo Schumann for piano is just spectacular. Mm -hmm. And the Beethoven bagatelles that Jane's doing, and these are a little bit unusual too, which is something that was nice, because I think Anton was always known for bringing these kind of undiscovered little gems. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd be like, oh, he'd be like, I've churny, like these pieces that nobody else would ever know. And he would champion them. He'd be like, no, these are great. So to not just do one of the standard Beethoven sonatas, but to find something a little bit more off the beaten track, at least for a violinist, right? I'm sure this is and, all pianists thinking I'm crazy, you know. And what about the Mozart violin sonata? Mozart was a suggestion of Jane's. That, mm-hmm. like, just We wanted to get some Mozart on for, mm-hmm. for this program. And then you've got Boris Broughton, the National Academy Orchestra, coming yeah. through for the... 
for the last... Yeah, we had great success with our almost last night of the proms last year. And uh, again, celebrating Canada, we have two orchestra concerts this year. We have the National Youth Orchestra. Right. It's coming by, and we have Boris's National Academy Orchestra. And I think these are two very well-established training orchestras that have mm-hmm. contributed a lot to to the professional kind of uh, makeup of Canada. When you think about the major orchestras, mm-hmm. many of the players in all of Canada's major orchestras have gone through National Youth Orchestra or the National Academy Orchestra or both. And with that in mind, we thought this would be a great way to showcase some of Canada's up-and-coming stars. So Emily D'Angelo, mm-hmm. who's uh, studied at the University of Toronto and is making a big career for herself, already across the world in New York, is going to come back. And a former student of mine, actually, Kirsten Leong, who won the junior menuhin competition probably eight years ago now. He's studying in Belgium with Augustine Dumai and is doing all kinds of concerts. We're going to bring him back to play a solo with the orchestra as well. Let's cycle back to the question of um, the stuff that's not in the the main right. concerts, because there, there are other aspects to this, right. to this thing, it's not just a concert series. It's it's an immersive, right? Of course. And um, so, what? In addition to the stuff that we've talked about, the thing that jumped out at me was the uh, a family children's component yeah. this year that that is completely new that has yeah and this is something that we felt before that this is an a, an audience that we felt we weren't reaching we have a lot for many people but we weren't reaching we weren't giving something for kids to come to and it's interesting when you're around the campus of u of t mm. during the day in the summer it's swarming with children and camps and there's all kinds of people and they always have a lunch break right so we figured it yeah. would be perfect if we can put something on that gives these kids they can eat their lunch during the concert, but a chance to go and see some music mm-hmm. and, and see something like that and make it free, right? Because the idea is that not that we're like, oh, we're trying to charge more money for this. The idea is that we give these kids the chance to come hear great pieces. Mm-hmm. And we give them a chance to hear great artists too. It's not going to be different people playing the kids' concerts. James mm-hmm. Ennis is going to play in this kids' concert. I'm going to play in them. It's mm-hmm. going to be the same artists from the evening shows playing a lot of the same rep, but just kind of like set up in a way that it's more interesting for children. So rather than doing the complete Schubert cello quintet, we might do Schubert. We might explain like, look, this is why this is a great piece. Do a little excerpt Mm -hmm. from it. Have the people that are playing talk about what drew them to music. You know, I'd I'd be interested in hearing from Desmond himself. Like, when did you decide you wanted to be a cellist? What was it that you listened to that made you love this? Mm -hmm. What did you do when you were a kid? Did you play cello all the time or did you want to go outside and play hockey and do all this kind of stuff? It's interesting, I think, for kids to see where the people on stage got their inspiration from to realize like not everybody has the same track to whatever they decide to do as a career. So that's a model a bit, you were talking about Moordale earlier. Yeah, actually it's it's kind of the same sort of idea of music and truffles where they have the artists and they they put them together for kids. Except for the one that's uh, the... The day before, the, the next day. Schoolyard Carmen. With, yeah, we just couldn't, we couldn't fit, it, Julie, fit it together. Israelis. Yeah, we couldn't fit it together to get the same artists from the, the opera concert, unfortunately. Right. But the nice thing is that it will still tie together. Yeah. They, it'll always tie together to something else that we're doing in the week. There's nothing that's yeah. perfectly standalone. Yeah, and the, the Schoolyard Carmen and that particular company. Yeah. Have lots and lots They're of great mileage. They have a lot of mileage and, and really do all kinds of great stuff. It's really fun for yeah. the kids. Absolutely. And um, the regeneration concerts? Right. So that will be similar in concept to previous years. The idea that we have these fellows that come from all around the world and we put them together in groups with the guest mentors. Mm -hmm. And we work each piece for a week and then we perform it at the end of the week. So we have two sets to this. We have the Chamber Music Initiative. So then we have violinists, violists, cellists, and pianists that come Mm -hmm. to work with the guest mentors. And we have our Art of Song program where we have vocalists. And they don't perform with Soyli Izakoski and with Stephen Philcox and Martin Katz, but they're coached by them. And then we put them in concert at the end of the week. The change this year is that we're going to do all the concerts on the Saturday so that people that are the song lovers that happen to have jobs can still go and, and see their favorite vocal artists on the Saturday afternoon concerts. Uh-huh. So for those that want to go to everything, it can be a long afternoon because you can go to a, two Saturday afternoon concerts, have a nice dinner, and then come to an evening one as well. Yeah, yeah so we're excited about that. 
we have uh, the shuffle concerts, of course. So we have these at Heliconian Hall throughout the festival. And we've changed the concept of the shuffles a little bit this year. They're not fully programmed, but I can tell you, again, they're going to celebrate youth and emerging artists. So we have all uh, a great group of young players in Toronto that are just on the kind of brink of, of established careers. And we're going to celebrate their chance to kind of put something on the concert stage that maybe they wouldn't be able to do elsewhere. Um, we're going to have some of the regular mentors doing something that's a little bit unusual. So, for example, we have Mark Fewers doing a jazz concert, and he's also going to do a jazz concert at the Shuffle with a little bit of a different twist to it. But he won't—he won't, he won't yeah, tell me what. So, playing with David Braid, <laughs> yeah. Who I don't know if you saw this film, Born to Be Blue. No, I haven't. But but Chad Baker, David Braid did all the musical arrangements for that. Kevin oh, wow. Turcott, okay, did all the Chad Baker parts. Very good. Okay, but Fantastic. Um, I was wondering. In the free Festival Insiders events, if you're going to have an open rehearsal with the fellow fellows and the mentor. Yeah, I, I think we're going to have open rehearsals of all different kinds. The idea, the idea being trying to give a kind of a wide range of what we do. So there's definitely going to be open rehearsals of just the mentors concerts, but we're going to try to get some of the fellows in there as well. Yeah, I, I went to one last year where I guess the first violinist of the Dover mm -hmm. was working with in a Sibelius uh, right. piano quintet, I think it was. And it was just worked on the first movement for over an hour and a half. Right. And it was absolutely gripping. Nice. I mean, okay. So I can vouch for that okay. idea if you do it again. Excellent. But back to your... Um, what you mentioned with the, the kids' concerts. Who were your musical heroes in your formative years? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, people that I knew or people that I knew from movies? Um, <laughs> one of mine was certainly Yehudi Menuhin because he's, he's one of the great violinists of all time, but I, I personally had a chance to work with him when I was about 17 for a couple years, and he conducted me performing twice, and this was just amazing. I remember when I was a kid, I was playing Tchaikovsky, concerto with him and he'd come to Victoria to conduct the orchestra. I was living there at the time and he wanted a young BC violinist to play. And they're like, oh, we got this kid in Victoria. He's really, really cheap. He'll do it for absolutely nothing. <laughs> He'll do it for zero dollars. He'll probably pay us for the opportunity. And I'd worked with the, the orchestra before so they could kind of know that I would be hopefully at the level that he wanted. And so I remember really vividly going to his hotel room and, and working the Tchaikovsky. And I, I played through the piece for him. He's like, okay, good, good, good. The concert was the next day. So then he proceeded to give me a lesson and want to change all my fingerings. He said, oh, that's a good fingering, but try this one. <laughs> this, this one really worked well for me you know, 40 years ago. And I remember I, I didn't quite realize until then the difference between a genius and somebody who's just pretty good at the violin. He had no concept that there was no way I was going to change my fingerings in Tchaikovsky and Chair of the day before performing it with him. I was going to do what I knew that I could play and yeah. hopefully not mess up on stage. And he didn't have that idea. You know, throughout his career, he would just, he could change it. He'd get up on stage like, oh, I'm going to do a new Boeing here. Try something. And it gave him a freedom to be able to, to really interpret and to really feel like he could make music and it could be spontaneous and it could be different every time. And it really inspired me to try to be a little bit more like that, to not be like locked into like, I can only do it this way and it's the way I've practiced it. To be able to think like, okay, when you're on stage, you know, like we were saying before, every concert is different. Every audience is different. Every conductor is different. Every, every time you're playing, you have different people on stage with you. And to try to be able to use that to be able to make sure that what you're doing is spontaneous and is in the moment and isn't something that's only studied. So that music doesn't become something which is by rote, but something that can be a little bit more carefree. Life. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was something that I, I didn't quite get until I worked with him. So were you glad to have the, I mean, the sesquicentennial year has brought all kinds of things. Were you glad for your first year to have a theme dropped in your lap as, <laughs> as a given? And, yeah, because it's kind of like it's a bit and, of a no-brainer for this And year. what are you going to do for an encore oh. is the question. Or well, How I, many encores ahead are you thinking well, I, and planning? Did, did I already mention the Beethoven yes. anniversaries in 2020? Yeah. So we have plans up until then, I uh -huh. would say, because we're fitting everything around the fact that that's going to happen in 2020 and we're going to plan to not do the stuff that we want to do in 2020 and 18 and 19. Yeah, right. Which means that we had had to come up with at least some sort of ideas for 18, 19. <laughs> you know, I, the sesqui thing was great because there was a lot of people that I wanted to get in. And I right. think at the end of the day, summer music is about people. And it's about the composers, mm -hmm. about the performers, about the people that go to the concerts. It's about the people that work there. 
And for me to have a chance to have an excuse to bring in Andrew Wan again, to bring back Nikki, to bring Desmond, mm -hmm. to bring people like Joe Johnson who have made Canada their, their home. You know, I think this was something that I was like, oh, I felt very lucky. It's like, oh, good. I have an excuse to be able to get these people in. I don't need to be looking for something off the beaten track that I don't know. Anything else, Paul? Well, I think, I mean, I've got a couple of questions, but I think they've sort of been covered. I mean, what are your artistic goals for the festival? That's a, that's a very good question. I'd say it's very wide ranging. And it's interesting. I found Toronto very strange when I first moved here because it's it really empties out to a certain point in the summer, more mm -hmm. so than I expected being in Montreal. I would say Montreal is the opposite, where the festivals happen in the town. So you have the jazz festival. You have these big draws where people come into Montreal itself. Whereas Toronto, we're so close to Stratford, to Alora, to the Muskokas, that there, there's this idea that you have to leave Toronto to get art arts in the summer. And I would say that's becoming less and less true. There's more going on, but we're lucky at Toronto Summer Music and that we have not a captive audience, but there's not that much going on around us. Mm -hmm. But I would say that does give us a responsibility to make sure that we are wide ranging enough that we fulfill the needs of concert goers in Toronto as there are no other major institutions presenting mm -hmm. at the same time. So yes, there'll continue to be opera and there's going to continue to be song and hopefully string celebrations every year. <laughs> yeah. This is great. Let's, let's just do the dates as a little tagline here. Yeah, absolutely. Starts. I will throw that throw one to, to you. So we run from the second week of July through these to the end of the first week of August. So we're opening with the St. Lawrence Quartet. I think it's uh, July 13th, is it? Yes. On the Thursday. And that will be the opening night at Kerner Hall. And we run from there and we have concerts basically throughout the week for the next four weeks. Um, if you want to come see the Regeneration Artists, they run every single Saturday um, during the afternoon and then in the evening. And these are some of the most... For me, the most inspiring concerts, because you never know what you're going to get. And you get to see people on stage that might be playing the piece for the first time, but you can feel that excitement in the audience. And the idea of you get to see somebody who's doing something for the first time and learning what it's like to do it for the first time, for me, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. We have uh, classes on the Sundays, so open classes with James Ennis, with Sylvia Zakowski, and with Jane Coop. And they will be on Sunday afternoons as well. And these are a great opportunity for people to come and see see what James says to people, right? We see him on stage. We see what he has practiced, but it's always interesting to get inside the head of somebody like Jimmy and then see like, okay, but well, what is he actually thinking? And you can see that when he teaches somebody else. You can see how he reacts to what they do. Yeah, it's interesting. I went to an Isakovsky masterclass two years ago. Mm -hmm. And after a two-page song by Hugo Wolf, she said, bless you, Wolf, and called the piece a big song in two pages. Right. And so you just get these little personal insights. Not only that, but I went to your master class last year and I just, very impressive, especially the way you, you talked about this anecdote about Andrew Dawes and uh, vibrato. Right. Yeah. And I just thought, what a way to put yourself into the level of the people that you were giving the master class to. It, it was just a brilliant touch. Well, I, I love the open classes because I think you really, you get to see the way people think about music. And it's an interesting thing to see. You, we see them on stage and we see what they do with music, but to see how they're thinking gives you just another insight into what they're trying to do when they're on stage. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for taking the time. And thank you all for listening. Bye-bye.